mid to late 80s, Mike Tyson was considered by most to be the baddest boxer on the planet. He burst on the scene as a teenager and caught the eye of sports fans around the world, knocking out most of his opponents in the first few rounds. In 1986, Tyson became a household name when he became the youngest heavyweight champion in the history of boxing at the age of 20. In 1989, Tyson reigned supreme in the boxing world by that time because he held a professional record of 37 wins and zero losses. And after 10 title defenses, many felt as if Tyson was unbeatable, including many of his opponents who could not even look him in the eye when they stepped into the ring to fight him. World-famous boxing analyst Larry Merchant once said of Tyson, nobody believes that anybody can beat Tyson. And at that time, that was true. There was no one disputing that. At that time, his dominance was unquestioned in the boxing world. Most everybody believed him to be unbeatable, especially Tyson. I mean, there was no one who thought higher of Mike Tyson and was more confident in his abilities than Mike Tyson. Shortly after becoming champion, Tyson said in an interview, no one will ever take my belt away from me. For several years, he was right. But that all changed on February 10th, 1990. On that day, a man by the name of James Buster Douglas stepped into the ring with Tyson and shocked the world. In this fight, Douglas was a 42 to 1 underdog, though his trainer said it was more like a million to 1. It's good that your trainer's saying that about you. Some confidence booster there. I mean, no one thought that Douglas had a chance to win except for Douglas, and he may have had his doubts. But on that day, everyone, with the exception of Douglas, was wrong. On that day, Douglas fought the perfect fight and defeated the champion, knocking him out in the 10th round. Many still consider that fight to be one of the biggest upsets in boxing history, and many also consider it at least in the top 25 biggest upsets in the history of sports. Now, that fight has been reviewed thousands of times since, and there have been many reasons given for Tyson's defeat, but the most common explanation that people come back to time and time again is that on that night, Tyson made a common mistake often made by champions. He underestimated his opponent. Came in overconfident, thought he had it in the bag, and that overconfidence led to his defeat. This incredible upset reminds us of a timeless truth we see time and time again in the sporting world and time and time again in life, and it's this. Pride goes before a fall. Pride goes before a fall. Now, many in our world today, many of you in here are aware of that saying, and maybe you've even used it 
on occasion, but few realize that this comes straight out of the Word of God. Solomon says in Proverbs 16, 18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's right here in the Word of God. And this saying found in Proverbs, though it's stated directly right here, this statement is also demonstrated throughout the Scriptures. God's Word is filled with story after story telling of the pitfalls of pride and the dangers of overconfidence. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. In this passage, Paul is going to warn the Christians at Corinth about the dangers of overconfidence. And his main point in this passage is found in verse 12. Skip down and look at it with me. Look at what Paul says in verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Pride goes before fall. This verse tells us right here what the main point of this passage is. Now, now, let me ask you this. How does this fit into this section of Scripture? Remember, for the past three weeks, we have been discussing Christian liberty in 1 Corinthians. And I mentioned to you that this is the topic of conversation for Paul from chapter 8 all the way through chapter 10 into the first part of chapter 11. So how does being overconfident fit with Paul's passage here? How does it fit in this section on Christian liberty? Well, I'll tell you. First, let me give you a brief review. Remember the Corinthians had asked Paul whether or not they should eat meat offered to idols. And along with that question, they offered up a few reasons why they thought they should. And as we explained several weeks ago, though Paul agrees with them that they have freedom to eat meat that's been offered to an idol, he says to them that they should be willing to allow love to limit their liberty. In chapter 8, he says, though the act of eating meat sacrificed to idols isn't wrong, because an idol isn't anything anyways, he says, offending your Christian brother or sister and tempting him or her to violate conscience is. In chapter 9, he continues with this point. Paul says, though it's not wrong to exercise your freedom, if that freedom hinders believers spiritually and becomes a roadblock for the lost coming to know the Lord, you should waive that right so that God's people can thrive and so the gospel can advance. And remember, in chapter 9, what does Paul do? He puts himself forward as an illustration for this point. And he shows his readers how he waived the rights he had, how he put aside his own freedoms for their sake and for the sake of the lost. Well, in chapter 10, Paul tells the Corinthians that they not only need to be considering others before exercising their Christian liberties, but they also need to be mindful of how exercising that freedom will affect them individually and spiritually. And believe me when I say the Corinthians needed to hear this message and take this into account because at that time 
Many of the, Christ, the Corinthians, the Christians at Corinth, they were pushing their freedoms way out to its limits. They were pushing themselves to the edge and putting themselves in, an oppor- in, in, a, in a situation for a fall. As we've said already, the Corinthians, they struggle with pride and overconfidence. They truly thought that they were invincible spiritually. They thought, hey, we're saved. We're mature. We're free. We can go out and do all these things, and we know how to do it in a way that won't hurt anybody else, nor is it going to have any effect on us. They thought we are too far along spiritually to get trapped in any of that. Many of them were at the place where they were so confident of their maturity and so confident of their strength that they thought they could handle anything. And Paul saw the dangers of this reasoning and he, he, he knew that if they continued to push their liberties to its limits, a fall was likely. It's a story of a boy who climbed up into the top bunk of his bunk bed one night to sleep. And in the middle of the night, there was this loud crash that sounded throughout the whole house. And when the father ran in, the boy was on the floor crying, and the father said, are you okay? What happened? The boy said, yes, I'm okay, wiping away the tears. He said, I guess I just fell asleep too close to where I got in. You know, there are a lot of Christians doing just that. They're too comfortable on the edge. And though they are confident, though they are convinced that nothing's going to happen, what often results is a big fall. The Christians at Corinth were in danger of this very thing, so Paul writes to them here to warn them of the dangers of overconfidence. And once again, he does this by giving them an illustration. In chapter 9, Paul put himself forward. He was the illustration. But in chapter 10, he uses the children of Israel to make his point. In the following verses, Paul shares that they too had issues when it came to overconfidence. They too had issues with pride, and they too abused their newfound freedom. And as a result, they were disqualified from God's service. And Paul shares this with the Christians at Corinth to warn them that if they think they stand, you need to be on guard, you need to be on watch, or you're going to fall. In this passage, through the example of Israel, Paul is going to give three ways God's people can be on guard against overconfidence so they do not fall into sin. Let's take a look at these. First, he says, remember that a good start is not a guarantee of a good finish. This is key. Remember last week we talked about how Paul ends chapter 9 with a word on the dangers of being disqualified from ministry. He explained in detail how one could put forth great effort in, in, in training for a race and have a great start and then be disqualified somewhere along the way. In this chapter, he continues with this point by showing that that's exactly what happened 
to the children of Israel in the wilderness. Paul shows us in this passage that though they had a great start, they did not finish well. In chapter 10, verse 1, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. Let's stop there for a moment. Paul's giving a strong statement here. He's basically saying, I don't want you to forget this. I want you to ingrain this in your minds. I want you to hear what I'm saying. I want you to to take it to heart. And then he says, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, knowing what we know already, and, and because I just told you a minute ago, it's obvious Paul is talking about Israel and the Exodus here because he mentions being under a cloud, being under the cloud and passing through the sea. In the book of Exodus, we learn that for 400 years, God's people had been slaves in Egypt. They were not their own people. They did not have their own national identity. The society that they lived in dominated them. They were slaves. But after an extended period of time, God finally intervened and said, it's time for you to be set free and be set apart For me, it's time for you to be a witnessing community for me. So he sets them free and he led them by a cloud through the sea. These two things represent God's guidance and protection of his people. Also notice in this verse and throughout this entire passage that the word that Paul uses over and over again is the word all. All the Jewish people. We're under God's divine guidance. All the Jewish people were under God's divine protection. All of them trusted Him. All of them followed Him. And all of them had a good beginning with God. That's the point Paul's making. Same is true for the Christians at Corinth. They have been born in this godless city and raised in pagan homes. They had been slaves to sin, but God intervened and He freed them from a life of sin and He called them out and set them apart for Himself. See the similarities? Look at verse 2. Paul says, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now let's be honest, that sounds a bit strange, right? What is Paul talking about baptized into Moses? What does he mean here? Is he talking about the physical act of baptism involving water? Did Moses dunk everybody when they were passing through the Red Sea? Did he say, stick your head to the side and let me stick it in this wall of water? Is that what happened? No. He's talking about identification. Let me explain. The physical act of baptism is an outward It's an outward picture of what is to be an inward reality. It's an act that says, I have been united with Christ. I have identified with Him. So Paul is saying here, in the same way you, Corinthians, are under the leadership and headship of Christ, in the same way you have been identified with Him, in that same way, the children of Israel were under the leadership of Moses. So again, he's making a comparison here to show that they, like the Israelites, had a great beginning with God. In the same way the Christians at Corinth associated with the one true God by being followers of Jesus, Israel associated with the one true God by being followers of Moses. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, And all ate the same spiritual food, 
and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Here Paul reminds the Christians at Corinth about how God provided food and drink for his people while they were in the wilderness. Paul refers to it as spiritual food and spiritual drink. That just means it was provided miraculously by God. And then he tells them in verse 4 that the rock that followed them while they were in the wilderness was Christ. Now what is Paul talking about here? Well, in Exodus chapter 17 and in Numbers chapter 20, we learn at two different times, God's people drank water miraculously from a rock that's listed that we have in the scriptures. Now, ancient Jewish folklore, get this, this is interesting. They said that while the Jews were wandering in the wilderness, there was literally a rolling rock that was following them wherever they went so that they could get water when they needed it. That's what Jewish folklore said, and, and many were well aware of this at this time, and Paul was as well, which he, he probably has this myth in mind when he informs them here that the rock that was following them and was sustaining them and was giving them life was not literally a rolling rock, but was Christ. He say, he's saying here, Christ in a spiritual sense, but still in a very real way, was there with them. Now, we don't often think about Christ hanging around in the Old Testament, do we? We often think about his beginnings on Christmas Day. But Paul informs the Christians at Corinth that in the same way Christ is present with you today, interceding for you and sustaining you, and giving you life he was with the Jewish people doing the exact same thing in the wilderness again Paul is making the point that the Israelites like the Corinthians had a great beginning with God but here's the kicker look at verse 5 nevertheless with most of them God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness here Paul shows us that though all of God's people were in the race upon leaving the wilderness, not all of them finished. Not all of them crossed the finish line. Though they had a great start, they did not finish well. And when Paul says most, he's being kind here, isn't he? He's putting it nicely. There were actually only two from that generation that survived 40 years in the wilderness. Joshua and Caleb, not even Moses made it. What a statement that would have made for the Corinthians. Moses, along with the rest, died in the wilderness. He did not even finish. Now don't misunderstand me. Moses belonged to God, but he fell short of the desired goal in his service to God. Now, I don't know for sure, but I like to think that when this was read in the Corinthian assembly, this hit like a ton of bricks. Paul's saying, you think you're something? You think you've got the spiritual life licked? You think you can just coast to the finish line? Moses did not even finish. Wow, what a statement. Paul says all of this so that the Corinthians will not be overconfident 
He wants them to learn from the Israelites that though they entered the race, though they had exercised a certain level of self-discipline, though they were headed in the right direction toward the right goal, most of them fell short and most of them were disqualified. And again, Paul's words here are meant to serve as a healthy reminder to the Christians at Corinth that a good start for God is not a guarantee of a good finish with him in ministry. Not talking about salvation, we're talking about in ministry. Unfortunately today in my generation as well as in the generation that precedes mine, there's a much smaller number of servants for the Lord today than there once was. Because many have been disqualified. Many have ruined their witness and their credibility with people. Believers, I pray that we not add to the decline. Don't you? My prayer for myself, as well as for all of you, that we would finish much stronger than we started. Number two, second way that God's people can avoid the pitfalls of overconfidence is by realizing that too much self-confidence leads to spiritual failure. Like I mentioned earlier, the children of Israel, like the Christians at Corinth, they had issues with pride and overconfidence, and, and they too abused the freedoms that they had in God and, and they pushed it too far to the edge and did not put any restraints upon themselves. They kept pushing and pushing and as a result, they were disqualified from God's service. In verses 6 through 10, Paul gives the reasons for their disqualification and he lists these things to show us the scary comparison between them and the, and the Christians at Corinth and ultimately we see the scary comparison between them and us today. Look at verse 11. He says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Paul says, These things that happened to the Israelites. They've been recorded for us so that we might learn from their failure. And believers, they've been recorded for us so that we might learn as well. So let's take a moment and look at these examples and make some application from Israel's failure. First reason they were disqualified is because they craved evil things. Look at verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might de not desire evil as they did. <clears throat> Paul shows in verse 6 that the Israelites did the exact opposite of what is required to run a good race for God that Paul describes at the end of chapter 9. They lusted after evil things and they let the desires of the flesh call the shots and as a result they became useless to God. The Corinthians were fighting the same battle and believers, we are fighting that battle today, aren't we? It continues today on a daily basis. We are tempted to run after evil things. That's why it's so important that we reject the ways of the world and we look to God for guidance and work out as believers what he is working in us and keep our bodies in check and do what Paul says in 
1 Timothy 4, 7, discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Notice also, number two, they became idolaters. Look at verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. You don't have to look too long, too hard to see God's people struggling with idolatry in the Bible, do you? It's all throughout the scriptures. I mean, this was a constant battle for them. And get this, while they were in the wilderness, idolatry took place without the influences of other evil nations. They were on their own in that. They just carried out what they learned in Egypt, out into the wilderness with them. And these practices, they continued on from one generation to the next. Fast forward to the first century, and idol worship is still a struggle for God's people. The issue that Paul has been dealing with for the past three chapters with the Corinthians has been on the issue of eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. Many of the Christians at Corinth, they didn't see it as a big deal. They said, what's the big deal? You know, an idol isn't anything anyways, so we're free to eat. And Paul agreed. But he realized that the Corinthians were pushing this freedom too far, out to the limits, to the extent where they were attending pagan feasts because they believed idols were nothing. Paul saw the dangers in this and knew that this would result eventually in them participating in these practices and falling into idol worship, which I believe many of them probably did. He shows in verse 7 that the Israelites fell into idolatry in the middle of the wilderness without anyone around. So the chances of the, the Christians at Corinth not falling prey to it in a city where it took place on every street corner was not likely. That's why he warns them, calls for them to be on guard and even wave that right if that's where it's going to lead. Now you're probably thinking to yourself, okay, I get it. You know, idol worship's bad. What does that have to do with me? When we don't have golden calves here in Jacksonville, we do have concrete tomatoes all around. But I'm imagining no one's tempted to bow and pray to those, right? Yeah, that's true. But there are other things that compete for our affections, am I right? There are other things that trump your relationship with God. There are other things that society tells us to pursue and go after. And, and there are other things that society tells us there, there is lasting satisfaction to be had in other than the things of God. That's idolatry. Let me ask you this. Can our freedoms, the liberties we have, become idols? You bet. If these liberties become more important than God's glory and the advancement of his gospel, that's been Paul's point to the Corinthians. If we enjoy the liberties we have more than God himself, that's idolatry. So we need to be on guard against it, don't we? They also acted immorally. Point number three, they acted immorally. Verse eight. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. <clears throat> Paul shows here that the Israelites struggled with sexual immorality, which led to serious 
consequences. And remember, we spent three chapters from chapter 5 to chapter 7 discussing the issues that the Corinthians had in this area. And believers, this is still a struggle for us today. Many believers have fallen into sexual sin because they pushed their freedoms in this area to its limits. Married folks, it may begin with something as small as, or what you believe it to be as small as, having lunch with the co-worker of the opposite sex. Or singles, it may begin with you being with a boyfriend or girlfriend at the house alone, whatever it is. Paul says you need to just waive those rights to avoid a colossal fall. Look at the next problem. They tested God. Verse 9. Paul says we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. In Numbers 21, we learn that the children of Israel began to speak against God and against His provision and were told that the Lord sent fiery snakes among the people and they bit the people and many of them died. It's God's way of saying, I don't like that. You're pushing me too far. You're putting me to the test. Well, the Corinthians were doing something similar. They were saying, we are free. We're not going to take anyone into consideration when exercising our freedom. We're free to do it, so we're going to do whatever we want. And they were pushing their liberties to its maximum limits. Like Israel, though they belonged to God, they wanted life to themselves. They wanted to live as they pleased instead of living a life that is pleasing to God. And again, this is a struggle for us today, isn't it, believers? Though we want salvation, many of us would, if asked, if we were honest, we would say we still want to go at life on our own. We want salvation, but we want our life to live the way we want to live it. The problem with this mentality is, for example, when I do this, I don't always know what's best for me and what's right around the corner. And when I venture out on my own, I'm in danger of a colossal fall. Paul says, don't test God in that way. Instead, love and trust and follow the Lord. The last thing the Israelites were guilty of was complaining. They grumbled against God. I don't think I have to tell you what grumbling is, do I? Parents, you hear your kids do it when you tell them to do something they don't want to do. And adults, we do this at times when people tell us to do something we don't want to do. The children of Israel were grumblers. Look at verse 10. Paul says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. While in the wilderness, Israel reached the point where they had become dissatisfied with their circumstances in life. So they started to complain about everything. They complained about the food. They complained about their lack of comforts. They complained about their lot in life. And this led to Israel's ruin. So Paul warns the Corinthians not to grumble about where God has them in life. And believers, the same goes for us. When we continue to gripe and complain about our lot in life, what we are telling God essentially is that we are not satisfied with His will for our life. We need to learn from the Israelites' example. Their dissatisfaction with God 
resulted in them dying in the wilderness. May we adopt the mentality of the Apostle Paul who said in Philippians 4, 11 through 12, listen to this. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Well, as we said at the beginning in verse 12, Paul gives a great summary of this passage. Look at it again with me. He says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's it. That's the point that Paul is making here and he makes throughout this passage. So Paul has gone to great lengths in the first part of chapter 10 to tell us that the race that we are in, it is a challenging one. There are many bumps in the road. There are many pitfalls along the way. Therefore, we need divine guidance, don't we? To run the race well and to avoid being disqualified. Which brings us to our third and final point. Number three, to avoid the pitfalls that come from overconfidence, God's people need to recognize that God is the source of spiritual strength. Look at verse 13. Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Stop there for a minute. This should bring comfort to you, shouldn't it? It should bring comfort to all of us. As we hit bumps in the road, in the race that we are running for God, it should comfort us to know that there have been other believers who have gone before us who have had similar trials and temptations that we are faced with today. And knowing that should be an encouragement for you and for me. Remember, we're told that, that Jesus himself experienced what we experience and, and was tempted like we are. Now, though he did not give in, though he remained perfect, he can sympathize with us in that way. Paul continues with the encouraging words. At the end of verse 13, he says, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation, he will also provide you the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Here Paul is calling for the Corinthians to direct their confidence in the right direction and toward the right person. In this passage, Paul has been warning about the dangers of overconfidence in self, but confidence in God, he says, that's another story. He shows us here that God is the one we need to trust in and rely upon when facing trials and temptations because he is faithful and is in control and he knows where we are in life and knows what we can handle and what we can and is able to provide us with strength in the midst of it and is able to deliver us from our distresses and our difficulties. So to avoid the pitfalls of overconfidence, we need to recognize that He, God, is the source of our spiritual strength. Me and with this, been speaking primarily this morning to the believers in the audience, but I now want to spend just a little bit of time to speak about the dangers of overconfidence to those of you in here who are not trusting in Christ for your salvation. Maybe you're here this morning and you have refused to go God's way in life up to this point in your life. 
and you are going at life on your own and maybe you're confident in the life that you're living on your own apart from God and maybe you're confident that this is the life you were born to live I'm going to rain on your parade this morning if you're living a life apart from God and if you are searching for fulfillment in life without him scripture is clear that that false sense of confidence is going to lead to your ruin truth is that's not the life that God has called us to live God made you to live for him under his guidance and under his direction and even though sin has separated us from him God went as far as sending his son the eternal son of God to live and die so that we might be made right with him again. Scripture tells us we will humble ourselves and realize our sinfulness and our need and place our confidence and our trust in the person and work of Christ. We can be made right with God. And then, and only then, can we be truly confident, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done in our place for our salvation. You're here this morning. You're not trusting in Christ for your salvation. Listen, there's no better time than right now to get that right and make that decision. Your search for meaning and happiness and significance can be over this morning if you would turn over the reins of your life and turn from your life of sin and trust in Christ. Let's pray.